I'd like to tell you where to turn, but I'm still trying to figure it out, honestly. Um, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I told uh, Wyatt in the back uh, that I had two messages and I could not figure out which one uh, to preach. And he said, which one is shorter? <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know. That's the truth. I don't know which one is shorter. Uh, it's the way it goes sometimes. I don't sit down in front of a mirror with a stopwatch and time these things out uh, so that I know exactly uh, how long they'll go uh, or even exactly everything that'll be said in them. Um, but we are in a unique time. I have the normal First Timothy chapter 1 message that I uh, have prepared to, uh, uh, to teach through, and yet at the same time, uh, it is a weird Sunday morning. I, I went uh, to the restroom right after uh, uh, choir, uh, before in the men's restroom. I came out and I just noticed that we still have a full thing of hand sanitizer in the men's restroom. It's filled to the brim and I thought that hasn't been stolen yet. That's a good thing for our church that no one has taken this valuable commodity that is, that is on the sink in there. Uh, it has been a crazy week. Uh, I work in... Uh, a, a business where we supply personal protection equipment, uh, gloves and face masks and disposable clothing. And I don't know that that means I have uh, uh, been given a greater sense of the panic and alarm around this particular event than anyone else. But I can tell you, I have uh, witnessed a lot of panicking and talked to a lot of panicking people. And I, I don't laugh at them. I don't think that we should laugh at them. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important that Christians understand what a good Christian response is to the days uh, that we live in. And James kind of set me down this path when he uh, started uh, the scripture reading uh, this morning. He read the very the first passage, this do not worry on my notes here that I was uh, going to begin with. And he read it and I didn't tell him to read it. So I appreciate that, brother. Thank you for doing that. I thought about uh, grabbing Justin, uh, you know, when I came into the building this morning and saying, hey, why don't you help me and uh, take one of these passages and have whoever's doing the, the scripture reading just read through one of these. And uh, Justin wasn't here, so I said, well, you know, we'll see what happens. And then, uh, you know, by the Lord's will, uh, James turns uh, to that particular passage. So uh, this is on the minds of, I think it's rightful to say, most of the people in the world. Uh, today. Uh, a lot of the large churches around our country today, even churches that uh, seem to hold a good Christian faith and values, are not meeting today, and I have no judgment against them for that, by the way. I don't have any, any uh, verdict against them for that. It's just to say that this is on the, the minds of Christians and non-Christians all over the world, and of course I'm talking about uh, the concern over the virus uh, that began in China and has made its way to our shores. What is a good Christian response? It might, it might or might not surprise you uh, to know that there are a variety of answers being put forth as to what a good Christian response would be. Um, and that's not new. Uh, back in the uh, 14th century, uh, when the plague ravished most of Europe, uh, it left quite a, a, a sense of panic in the minds of people as it pertains to sickness. And in the 1500s, uh, after Martin Luther, uh, who is generally considered the father of the Reformation that has brought 
our worship services uh, to the place they are now in some way, shape, or form. Martin Luther had to write uh, a note of counsel and encouragement to Christians who were afraid because the plague was beginning to resurface in Europe. And Christians wanted to know how they were supposed to respond to that, specifically whether or not it was godly to run from it. They were not sure. And maybe I'll read you something from the letter that he published, but it's there uh, on the internet for you to read as well. I, I read it this morning, which is read part of it out loud to my kids, which is why we were a little late in getting here, but we still made choir. Uh, and I'm glad that we did, because it is right to worship the Lord in times like this, and it's right to meditate on who He is. And it's not right to make every single thing we do about our fear and our anxiety. It's right to worship God. So I'm glad we had choir. I'm glad we had as many people in the choir this morning as we did. I'm glad that as many people as were able and safely to do so are here to open God's Word and to study this morning. There are a lot of people who aren't. And for some of those people, they might be getting their encouragement on other sources this morning, mainly from the internet and all kinds of live stream uh, sources and services uh, all across the United States of America, which brings us kind of back around to what we began last week, which is the pastoral letters. Uh, Paul writes to 1 Timothy, he, or he writes in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and he writes in Titus to pastors about the church. And the reality is, when you go on the internet to listen to what other pastors and teachers have to say, uh, you most likely do not know those people. Uh, you're not a part of their ministry. You are simply tuning into something that it may sound good, it may be good, but you don't know them. And that is not how Christians are supposed to get their Bible instruction. They're supposed to get their Bible instruction from leaders who they know, from pastors who are in front of them, from lives that they can examine. But there are many, many Christians who don't do that, who don't have leaders they know and who, who think that the Word of God is more interesting and more entertaining and, frankly, just more competently taught from pulpits from people who they will never meet in person and never sit down at a dinner table with and never shake the hand of, which we're not supposed to be doing anyway, right? Um, so this morning, I was just curious as to what some of the messages out there are and so I, I had plenty of time with no Sunday school. I, I listened to a sermon, uh, and I got there from a prominent pastor's Twitter account. Yes, Joel Olstein is better at Twitter than I am. He is, he is much better. He has more followers than I do. I rarely tweet anything, and only about half of it is about the Bible when I do. A lot of it's about sports or whatever else is on my mind. Joel Olstein is good at this, and his Twitter message this morning was a video message with the simple phrase which he has been uttering for years and which has become the mantra of his ministry, God's got this. God's got this. Which isn't wrong. God certainly does have our lives in control. And I thought, well, that is an interesting sentiment, but there's no teaching behind it. And so I went and I found the sermon on the internet that Joel Osteen preached in September of 2018 that became the foundation for this God's got this premise of his and, uh, and he began the sermon, uh, I'll just tell you briefly the four points. Number one was let go and let God. That was point number one. And the gist of this is God will make things happen, which is true. God does make things happen. The quote that I wrote down in note number one, if we live frustrated and worried, God steps back, which 
we go from a place of encouragement that God's got this to a warning that if, if somehow we live a life that appears to be under distress, if we are frustrated, if we are worried, that God steps back. In other words, God retreats from us when we do that, and He is not going to be working about uh, for our benefit if we do that. Uh, let go and let God came with that warning. God is saying, according to Pastor Olstein, I've got this. I'm working behind the scenes. I'm in the process of turning it around. It's just a matter of time before you see things change in your favor. That's a quote. But if we live frustrated and worried, he steps back. His text, which he never turned to, was Daniel in the lion's den. Um, uh, and, and his main point from Daniel in the lion's den was that Daniel was not worried or frustrated uh, and that if we live uh, worry-free and frustration-free, God knows how to make us unappetizing to our enemies. Uh, he, said, what we should, what, he said, what should take you out can't harm you and it can't stop you. And then he specifically said it can't stop your business which for most of us is not our main concern, but it, it was in, in the message. And he said, there is a, and it's an interesting phrase. I don't know what he means because he never explained it, but he said, there is a bloodline that God has put around you and your family to protect you. He then identifies these enemies who we are uh, going to defeat as sickness and debt. They can sense your fear and panic just like the lions in the lion's den, and if they sense your fear and panic, they will advance on you. And that's why, he said, the Bible tells us, give no place to the enemy. Now, those of you who know the, the verse there in Ephesians of give no place to the enemy, it's not talking about not being afraid in the face of sickness and death. It's talking about do not sin and give Satan a foothold in your life. It's right on the end of a long list of sins that Christians are not supposed to commit because if we commit them, we are giving Satan the enemy a foothold in our life. It's not talking about sickness and debt. It's not talking about not panicking under those obstacles. Nevertheless, he claims that they'll take ground from you if you sense fear. I think debt will take ground from you if you spend more money than you have, but apparently if we just are fearless in the midst of it. People, the final point where he landed was God's got this, which again is his mantra to terrified people in the world today, tweeting out on Twitter. God's got this means it's the attitude of faith, and this is a quote, the attitude of faith is what allows God to do amazing things. When we worry, again a quote, we tie the hands of the Almighty God. Think about that. It starts off so encouraging that God's got this, and yet the gist of the message is, if we show signs of weakness and fear and frustration and anxiety, this God who has got this is powerless to help us. It sounds a bit of an oxymoron to say when we worry, we tie the hands of the Almighty God. Nobody batted an eye. <laughs> you see, that's the thing about people with shallow messages that entertain folks and can fill basketball arenas like Joel Osteen can. You know, at the beginning of a Joel Osteen message, he holds his Bible up in the air, 
and everybody chants at the beginning. They, they have this big statement, and I'm not going to chant it, but it's this whole thing about how this is God's word, and it tells us who we are, and if we just listen to this, we'll never be the same again. And then they never open it during the whole message. They never look at it. They, they, don't, they don't crack the page. And it's not like once or twice. They never do. And he pulls these verses out to try to encourage people, and this is what they're left with. And I'm telling you, this is not an encouragement. But you know something? If anybody has turned on Twitter or the television to get some encouragement today, that's the message that they're hearing more often than anything else. Don't worry, God's got this. And here's why. You just have to be fearless and have faith and not be scared. Or else God can't do anything. What a, what a terrible idea. You know, uh, our hope, the reason why we don't worry, is described to us in Romans 8.28. Now turn to Romans 8.28. We might or might not get back to 1 Timothy, but we're going to look around today. Romans uh, 8.28. Why? I don't know if we're on the short path or the long path. It's not looking good so far, so hang in there, uh, brother. Romans uh, 8.28. Now, you know what? Uh, this came from Natasha Helwig, not Romans 8.28, but the, this, this particular uh, uh, focus. We were on Wednesday night talking about, about uh, uh, these things and about how we should respond. And she mentioned this, this Bible verse. And it's important for us to understand why we are not to worry. Now, here we go. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, that's an encouragement, right? We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And if you just heard that verse, uh, you might be encouraged to think of it in the wrong context because it sounds like no matter what's happening to you, it's all going to turn out great. And that's true if it's understood in the right context, and it's also not true if it's understood in the wrong context, what's the context? Look at verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. This is Paul. Now, this is right before that verse. Okay, but here's verse 18, the context of it. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul says, When I think about the sufferings of this present time, they're not even going to compare with the glory that is coming to us, to God's people. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, we will be transformed in a moment. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Yes, sin against sin. Sickness is a form of judgment against sin. You know, and that's, that, that's a point that we need to understand in times like this. You know, a lot of times people always make up sickness to be the bad guy and God to be the good guy and... Sickness just happens to attack and God... No, 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 no. Sickness isn't good. Death isn't good. But they are forms of judgment against sin. That doesn't mean that if Andy gets sick this week, it's because Andy did something particularly bad, so God's going to hammer him 
with sickness this week. That's not what it means. If that's what it meant, then we would all feel terrible every time somebody got sick. Oh my goodness, they've, they've done something horribly injurious to someone or something blasphemous to God because they have cancer. That's not what it means, but it is punishment in the sense that God has subjected creation to this futility in hope that we will recognize the reality of our sin and desperation and seek repentance and redemption. Creation, it says, has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who did it in hope. The chastisement of the sinner is the hope of salvation to the one who recognizes his sin and repents. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with the birth pangs until now. Is creation groaning around us? Absolutely. Everybody's life is messed up. Everybody's to some extent. Even Weston this morning did not understand why, you know, he couldn't go up there in the choir with his mom. Things are not like they normally are on Sunday morning. Everybody's life just a little out of whack, some more than others. Creation groans and labors under these birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Christians are waiting for a redeemed body, a body that cannot get sick, a body that will not suffer, a state of peace and joy with God forever, where sin no longer corrupts. For we were saved in this hope, But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now that is the call of the Christian. Folks, this is the context for which we get the promise in verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. We are headed towards a redeemed body. It doesn't mean sickness isn't going to get you. It doesn't mean there isn't going to be suffering. It doesn't mean that you're not going to groan sometimes inside of yourself under the weight of the burden that you feel for yourself and other people who are suffering. It means we have a hope of redemption in a new body eternal with God. Notice the context then in verse 29 right after this, this all things work together for the good. Look, it's salvation for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. It's salvation that he's looking towards. It's the glory of a new body, of a new hope with God. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Is he talking about a vacation home in Hawaii? Is he talking about a good bill of health? What does he mean? We know what Joel Osteen means. What does he mean when he says, How shall God who sent his son to die on the cross for us not freely give us all things? Verse 33, what what does he mean? Here it is. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Who is he who judges man? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or disaster or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing including viruses shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is Christ Jesus our Lord what is the good that is promised to the Christian debt free sickness free absolutely not sin free suffering free redemption with Jesus Christ our Lord it's we have to know these promises We have to know these things or else we've got no better message for people who are struggling than the Joel Osteens of the world. And we need a better message. We have a better message. So here is the three things that I want to meditate on as it pertains to this virus. And you need to hear these things. These are important. Some of you who are here on Wednesday, it'll be repetitive, but it's okay to hear them again. You know, John and Jana heard this already. They can hear it again. Amanda, Allison, she lives with me. She hears these things too often. Number one, love God. Love God. What do I mean by love God? I mean, don't panic. How, did you know you could tie loving God in the Bible to not panicking? Did you know that? You can. Why don't you turn to Psalm 18? Turn to Psalm 18. Matter of fact, I'll turn there too. I got it printed, but I'll, we'll look at it together on the page. Let's tie these two things together so we understand this. Psalm 18. Now we are only going to look at the first few verses. Pull it up on my sheet here too. Hold on. Okay. Now, Psalm 18 begins with this header, all right? To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And this is the song, okay? We're just going to look at the three, first three verses. Notice the first declaration. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Now, verses 2 and 3 are almost entirely about God saving and and David trusting and, and David relying on him and God protecting him from his enemies. God's a shield. God is a stronghold. He's worthy to be praised. David will be saved. God is his strength. He'll trust in him. God is a deliverer. He is a fortress. And how does the first verse begin? I will love you. O Lord, my strength, I will love you. There are scary things in the world, really scary things. Uh, The Bible uh, never suggests that there are not frightening things in the world. You know, the message of the Bible is not 
uh, don't, don't ever be scared. And, and don't ever feel fear. That's not the message of Scripture. Nowhere. Uh, when David says in Psalm 23, when, when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, and he gets to the, the, the further on. You remember the, the valley of the shadow of death there? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's not a valley of a shadow of death unless it's scary. The idea is David recognizes the danger. He recognizes the threat. It would normally be scary, but he will fear no evil because of what? What's, what's the next phrase? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What is, what's God's rod? God's presence is there. That's the idea. You're, you're going to go through scary things. And for some of you, this whole virus thing is not that scary because you've been through scary things. But there are others who are just in terror right now. It's not a Christian response. Now, we shouldn't look at those people and laugh at them. I mean, that's not, how, that's not a Christian response. But we should understand our love for God fuels our faith and our trust in Him. You know, you can't have one without the other. There are scary things. But David says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. And you are my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. So listen, you, you, the Christian needs to draw close to God and love God. The Christian should have an active prayer life. You know, I don't know what your prayer life looks like at your house, but you should spend time in God's presence. If you're not spending time in God's presence, you may be dealing with your fear in other ways, but you're not dealing with it the right way. There are a lot of people who've dealt with their fear by going out and buying all sorts of crazy stuff, right? And they make themselves feel better because they've managed to hoard all this stuff. You know, they're dealing with their fear. You know, and there are people who quarantined themselves off, and I'm not, I don't have a word of judgment on it, but there are those who are doing that to deal with their fear. There are lots of ways you can deal with your fear, but the Christian is supposed to deal with their fear by loving God, and that love fuels a trust with Him. Why the trust? Because we know He is there. It's His presence. There are a lot of people who say, oh, I trust God, oh, I trust God, oh, I trust God. They don't live like they trust God. You know why? They don't spend time in God's presence. They live as if He's not there. You can't separate your love for God and the presence of God from the, the faith and hope that we have in God. And if you try to do that, you're just best wishes. You know, that's all you are, just hopeful thinking. It's not real. But when David recognizes the presence of God because of his love for God, then he will not fear in the valley of the shadow of death. Now, so the first thing, the Christian needs to love God. The second thing the Christian needs to do is love their neighbor. You need to love your neighbor. And I think that this, more than anything else, is the reason why our world is panicking and suffering right now. More than anything else, I think this is why our world is panicking and suffering right now. Because it used to be a part of the American ethos, the American culture, that people were supposed to love their neighbors. Right? We, we were, some of us were raised with that being something that they taught us in school, in public school. You know, the golden rule was built on this foundation, and it used to be something in American virtue that people could bank on. This neighborly care, this, 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 this compassion we were supposed to have. 
for each other, this community we are supposed to have. It's not like that anymore. It's not like that anymore. As the Christian God has taken a back seat to the idols of our American nation, so have the Christian virtues lost touch with the everyday American person. And when the everyday American person doesn't love their neighbor, nor believes that their neighbor has great regard for them, then there's panic and fear that sets in about what might happen. Why are people fighting in stores over the eighth package of toilet paper that they're buying? Why? Why? Because we don't love our neighbor. And people are running to those stores to buy because they don't believe that the other people around them love them. Someone's going to scoop it all up. And in fact, that is exactly what's happening. There was an article yesterday I read about, and the article was trying to make me feel sorry for this guy. But this guy, the moment that the stock market took its first day crashing a week and a half ago, went out and, and he bought so much hand sanitizer from all the stores he could, him and his buddy, that he has 18,000 bottles remaining of hand sanitizer. 18,000 bottles. And that's not counting all the ones he sold on Amazon and eBay before Amazon and eBay shut his account down, wouldn't let him sell it anymore. Do you know that Amazon and eBay are shutting those accounts down because they think what he's doing is wrong? But somehow, the, whoever wrote this article thinks I'm supposed to feel sorry for this guy who's stuck with 18,000 bottles of hand sanitizer. But it's actions like that that cause people to run to the store and panic because they know we don't love our neighbor. Americans don't love their neighbor. And if there's an opportunity to exploit my neighbor's need for gain, I'm going to do that. If there's an opportunity, rather than alleviate the fear of my neighbor, to take a $3 bottle of hand sanitizer and sell it for $45, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be rich. And I'm serious. I was supposed to feel sorry for this guy. I mean, the article went on and talked about how it was going to set his family up and he's got a wife and a little child. And I'm thinking... Are you kidding me? Where is your regard for the common man? Christians are not the kind of people who reassure themselves by saying we are going to hoard up everything we need and if the person next to me doesn't, have, doesn't get what they need, so be it. They should have moved faster. Does that sound like the Lord Jesus Christ to you? Does that sound like love your neighbor as yourself? The video that went viral a week and a half ago about two Two people fighting over toilet paper when the one person's got like what 10 reams in her shopping cart and the other person's fighting with her because she doesn't have any toilet paper and she says, I just want one and they're fighting in a store. What we are experiencing right now is in some level directly related to the fact that we do not have an ethos of loving and caring for our neighbors in this country anymore. For a great many people, they cannot depend on it. Christians have to love their neighbor. You know, that's an Old Testament principle. I, I'm, I'm shocked sometimes. Christians think that that came just from Jesus in the New Testament. No, it came from Jesus in the Old Testament. It's in the law, Leviticus 19, 18. God telling Israel that they should love their neighbor as themselves. So is it a shock to those of us here this morning that my first two pieces of counsel to us in this virus epidemic are love God and love your neighbor? It seems like our Lord has said these are the greatest commands. Christians don't take the last of everything for themselves. 
Christians don't see the needs of others in a crisis as a chance to get rich, but as a chance to glorify God. If you see the crisis of other people's needs as an opportunity to get rich instead of an opportunity to glorify God, are you serving God or money? Which one? It seems like your mind is after one and not the other. Whereas if you see the needs of other people around you as an opportunity to demonstrate the love of God and give Him glory, it seems to me that you're serving the right master. That's what a Christian does. A Christian sees the needs and the fear and the anxiety of others as an opportunity to manifest the love and provision of their almighty God, the master that they serve. People who serve money see it as an opportunity to get rich. Christians don't flee from the sick and the diseased who need help. Christians don't run away and leave the sick and the diseased to die. This is what Martin Luther was writing about. That's not what they do. Now, I know that I'm taking a chance here, okay? But, but I, I tried to read just this couple of paragraphs from Martin Luther's letter. Again, these are people without hospitals, without hand sanitizer, in 1522, who are afraid that they're going to die of the plague, and he's writing to them. They're in a worse position than we are. And he's writing and he's giving them all kinds of great counsel about those who say, no, we need to stay and trust God. And he's saying, you know what, if they have the faith to do that, praise the Lord. And then he's speaking to those who are, who are weak and struggling, saying, no, we need to run, we need to preserve our lives. And he says, you know, if they don't have the faith to stay and do that, that's okay. They, you know, preserve their lives unless, and he gives them guidelines. For instance, he says, pastors and clergymen can't leave people without shepherds in, in places. He says, they can't, they can't run unless there's provision made for those who are sick and dying. You know, the good shepherd, the Lord said, is not the one when the wolves come who panics and runs the other direction. So they can't leave. He says, governors and leaders, they can't flee. They can't leave people without a government. God's given them authority over the people. They can't flee from the plague and go to some other country where the plague doesn't exist. That's sin and that's evil, he says. And he says, parents can't flee from children. He says, servants can't flee from masters who need them because this is a culture where they weren't slaves, but they're all kinds of maid servants. And, and, and he says, masters can't flee from servants. If your servant is sick and he needs aid, you can't just leave him there to die and run the other way either. And he said, and if a child's parents have died because of the plague and they leave him orphan, his family members and the people in his community and his neighbor, they can't leave that child alone there to fend for themselves. They step in and they have an obligation. So the only Christians, he says, who can run are those whom all provisions for all the needs and all of all the people God has given them responsibilities for have been entirely met. And then if they feel... It is best for them to leave than they can leave, and that's the only, that's the only way. And then he, he writes this, boy, he's really getting worked up by the time he gets to this portion. And I didn't expect it to be emotional for me, but I really did start to kind of tear up at the end of it. And I want to read this to you, okay, because Martin Luther is better at speaking to these things than I am. I've said a lot, but listen to this. This is a real letter to, to people who are facing tough questions. He says... From what has been said, we derive this guidance. We must pray against every form of evil and guard against it to the best of our ability in order not to act contrary to God, as was previously explained. If it be God's will that evil come upon us and destroy us, none of our precautions will help. 
Everybody must take this to heart. First of all, if he feels bound to remain where death rages in order to serve his neighbor, then let him commend himself to God and say, Lord, I am in thy hands. Thou hast kept me here. Thy will be done. I am thy lowly creature. Thou canst kill me or preserve me in this pestilence in the same way as if I were in fire, water, drought, or any other danger. If a man is free, however, and can escape, let him commend himself and say, Lord God, I am weak and fearful. Therefore, I am running away from evil and am doing what I can to protect myself against it. I am nevertheless in thy hands in this danger as in any other which might overtake me. Thy will be done. My flight alone will not succeed of itself because of calamity and harm are everywhere. Moreover, the devil never sleeps. He is a murderer from the beginning, John 8, and tries everywhere to instigate murder and misfortune. In the same way, we must and we owe it to our neighbor to accord him the same treatment in other troubles and perils also. If his house is on fire, love compels me to run to help him extinguish the flames. If there are enough other people around to put the fire out, I may go home or I may remain to help. If he falls into water or into a pit, I dare not turn away, but must hurry to help him as best I can. If there are others to do it, I'm released. If I see that he is hungry or thirsty, I cannot ignore him, but I must offer him food or drink, not considering whether I would, impo- rather I would risk impoverishing myself by doing so. A man who will not help or support others unless he can do so without affecting his safety or property will never help his neighbor. He will always reckon with the possibility that doing so will bring some disadvantage, danger, damage, or loss to himself. No neighbor can live alongside another without risk to his safety, to his property, to his wife, or to his children. He must run the risk that fire or some other accident will start in his neighbor's house and destroy him bodily or deprive him of his goods or his wife or his children and all that he has. Anyone who does not do that for his neighbor but forsakes him and leaves him to his misfortune, becomes a murderer in the sight of God. As St. John states in his epistles, whoever does not love his brother is a murderer. And again, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's 1 John 3. Uh, That is also one of the sins which God attributed to the city of Sodom. When he speaks through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, 49, this is what God said to Sodom, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Christ, therefore, will condemn them as murderers on the last day when he will say, I was sick and you did not visit me. If that shall be the judgment upon those who have failed to visit the sick and needy or to offer them relief, what will become of those who abandon them and let them lie there like dogs and pigs? Yes, how will they fare who rob the poor of the little that they have and plague them in all kinds of ways? That is what the tyrants do to the poor, even those who accept the gospel. But let that be, they have their condemnation. It would be well where there is such an efficient government in cities and states to maintain municipal homes and hospitals, staffed with people to care for the sick so that the patients from private homes might be sent there. This was the intent and purpose of our forefathers with so many pious bequests, a hospital in their own home and infirmaries so that it should not be necessary for every citizen to maintain a hospital in their own home. 
That would be a fine and commendable and Christian arrangement to which everyone should offer generous help and contributions, particularly the government, where there are no such institutions and they exist only in a few places. This is 1522. Hospitals were not on every corner. Where there are no such institutions, we must give hospital care and be nurses for one another in any extremity or risk the loss of salvation and the grace of God. Thus it is written in God's word and command, love your neighbor as yourself in Matthew 7. So whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. Now, if a deadly epidemic strikes, we should stay where we are Make our preparations and take courage in the fact that we are mutually bound together, as previously indicated, so that we cannot desert one another or flee from one another. First, we can be sure that God's punishment has come upon us, not only to chastise us for our sins, but also to test our faith and love, our faith in that we may see and experience how we should act toward God, our love that we may recognize how we should act toward our neighbor. I am of the opinion that all epidemics, like any plague, are spread among people by evil spirits who poison the air, exhale pestilence, breath which puts a deadly poison into the flesh. Nevertheless, this is God's decree and punishment to which we must patiently submit and serve our neighbor. Risking our lives in this manner, as St. John teaches, if Christ laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Notice the departure from Joel Osteen's message. Sickness, epidemic, are forms of God's punishment and judgment. They exist because we are in a sinful world. He doesn't deny that even as he tries to encourage the sick and the suffering. But he goes on, almost done. When anyone is overcome by horror and repugnance in the presence of a sick person, he should take courage and strength in the firm assurance that it is the devil who stirs up such abhorrence, fear, and loathing in his heart. He is such a bitter, knavish devil that he not only unceasingly tries to slay and kill, but also takes delight in making us deathly afraid, worried, and apprehensive so that we should regard dying as horrible and have no rest or peace all through our life. And so the devil would excrete us out of this life as he tries to make us despair of God, become become unwilling and unprepared to die, and under the stormy and dark sky of fear and anxiety, make us forget and lose Christ, our light and life, and desert our neighbor in his troubles. We would sin thereby against God and man. That would be the devil's glory and delight. Because we know that it is the devil's game to induce such fear and dread, we should in turn minimize it, take such courage as to spite and annoy him, and send those tares right back to him. And we should arm ourselves with this reply to the devil. Get away, you devil, with your terrors. Just because you hate it, I'll spite you by going the more quickly to help my sick neighbor. I'll pay no attention to you. I've got two heavy blows to use against you. The first one is that I know that helping my neighbor is a deed well-pleasing to God and all the angels. By this deed, I do God's will and render true service and obedience to him. All the more so because if you hate it so much and are so strongly opposed to it, it must be particularly acceptable to God. I'd do this readily and gladly if I could please only one angel who might look with delight on it. But now that it pleases my Lord Jesus Christ and the whole heavenly host because it is the will and command of God my Father, 
Then how could any fear of you cause me to spoil such joy in heaven or such delight for my Lord? Or how could I, by flattering you, give you and your devils in hell reason to mock and laugh at me? No, you'll not have the last word. If Christ shed his blood for me and died for me, why should I not expose myself to some small dangers for his sake and disregard this feeble plague? If you can terrorize, Christ can strengthen. If you can kill, Christ can give life. If you have poison in your fangs, Christ has far greater medicine." Should not my dear Christ with his precepts, his kindness, and all his encouragement be more important in my spirit than you, you roguish devil, with your false terrors in my weak flesh? God forbid. Get away, devil. Here is Christ, and here am I, his servant, in this work. Let Christ prevail. Amen. Isn't that a testimony? There is nothing that we face in this life that has not been faced by people before. And there is nothing new under the sun. And we have to love God and love our neighbors and finally put our faith and hope in the victory promised to us in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to end by reading about that victory with you, and I want you to read it with me. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, this is the Christian's victory. This is our peace and our hope. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll begin in verse 50. The whole chapter is good, but I won't put you through that. And we will read through the end of the chapter. This is Paul writing. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Boy, if you're trying to cling on to life, just know the body you got right now is not going into God's kingdom. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. That's why we experience sickness and death. Corruption, sin, punishment. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, But we shall all be changed, even those who manage to stay alive till the very return of Christ. Even those who don't physically die are still going to be changed because this body that we're trying to preserve is not going to make it to heaven. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption. And this mortal has put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that 
is how Christians ought to have victory in the midst of what's going on. And I hope that nobody here gets sick. And I hope that we don't watch any of the elderly with breathing problems die. But know this, the corruptible is not getting into heaven anyway. And the victory over death that Jesus Christ promises is victory over the grave, not avoiding it, over it. That should be how we live. Don't be motivated by fear. Everyone has rightly said, 1 Timothy chapter 4, God's not given us a spirit of fear. Is that 2 Timothy chapter 1, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. That's right to say. Embrace it by loving God, by loving your neighbor, and by understanding the victory that's promised. God does have this. This is how he's got it. Let's close with a word of prayer. Fathers, we live in a world where virtually on every channel people are trying to cope with the fallout and the breaking news left and right of cancellations and deaths and numbers and graphs and charts and tests. As we live in a world where our leaders are trying to stand up, we pray for assurances and be calming presences. We pray for those leaders. We pray for those leaders as you command us in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We pray, Father, that you'll give them wisdom. They have an awful task right now, a terrible task. They have the task of calmly trying to see us through a situation that they cannot entirely control, as no man can. So we pray for them. But, Father, for the people in our neighborhood where we work, who we meet each day, the people who live on either side of us, the people who don't know us, Help us to show them that they have neighbors who love them. Help us to assure the people who know that we are Christians that our faith does not stop at the end of the Sunday morning worship service, but that we have genuine compassion for them, that we pray for them, and that we will be there to meet their needs. Father, help us to love you and to recognize your presence in our lives. Help us to spend time in your presence each day. To be speaking with you and thinking of you each day. And combat the fear inside of us with the faith that you are in control and you are there. And Father, let our hope and our confidence not be in reaching the end of retirement with a big account. Or with seeing our children on our deathbed, saying goodbye. Help our hope not to be that we'll never have to bury a loved one or that we'll never experience suffering, but help our hope to be in the great reunion of the redeemed as we put on immortality and live with you forever. You did not subject creation to futility without a plan. Thank you, Father, for the judgment of sin that brings us to you. Help it to bring others to you and help us to point them to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.